Turn with me to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7 in the passage we read together a moment or two ago. We're reading this, the middle section, towards the end of a section of a great speech given by a man who's on trial for his life. It's an unequal trial. It's a rigged court. The authorities have already decided what they're going to do with this man. They've already paid false witnesses to give testimony against him. Uh, he is a man who, in other circumstances, we would regard as being a man of great integrity. And he demonstrates that, really, in the frankness with which he speaks. But the most interesting thing about this speech is that he isn't defending himself, which is what we would expect so much as he has become, in the course of the speech, the prosecutor. And it is those who are on the bench, it is the authorities in this case, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, that find themselves wrong-footed by the prisoner in the bench. Here is uh, Stephen, and as a kind of covenantal prosecutor, he adopts the position of many of the Old Testament prophets. He he sounds like an Old Testament prophet. And he's recounting in his speech the history of the Jewish people, the Israelites, and God. And it's that history, really, that is so compelling and is so terribly depressing. Because he observes a pattern, as he tells the story, he observes a pattern in the history of the Jews in their relationship with God that goes something like this. God would send his messengers, and they would reject them. God would speak his word, and they would disobey it. God would make his promises, and they would not believe them. This is the way it went. Over and over again, there was a cycle of disobedience. And he picks out of the story some of the key characters. He, he picks out uh, Joseph, for example, who was despised by his brothers who were the patriarchs of Israel. He picks out Moses. Moses, their great respected lawgiver, that their accusation against Stephen was that he had spoken against Moses. Stephen says, well, let me remind you of your relationship with Moses, your great lawgiver. This was the one, he says, who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers who received living oracles to give us. What greater glory could Moses have? Far from rubbishing Moses, Stephen is speaking up for Moses. Moses is the one who delivered the living words of God, the living oracles of God. The charge they brought against him was that he'd spoken blasphemy, was demonstrably false. But what does he go on to say about the fathers? Verse 38, the fathers refused to obey him. They thrust him out, their hearts turned again to Egypt. They wanted to go back to Egypt. Not only that, but they went to Aaron and they said, Make gods for us and we, that will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. This is what your people did. Joseph says, You are heralding and proclaiming Moses. You are you're saying that you are the great stalwart champions of the lawgiver Moses, but this is what you did to Moses. You rejected him, and you rejected his law consistently in your history. 
What did God do? What did God do? He says this, God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. God does for Israel what God does for people like you and me. Whenever we have a heart to disobey him or wander away from him, what does he do? He says, okay, go your way. Have what you want. Take the consequences of your action. Over and over again, we we read, for example, in Romans chapter 1, God gave them over to do what was in their hearts to do. He gave them the freedom. That's what they did. They went and they worshipped the host of heaven. A few years ago, actually, perhaps it was only last year, uh, there was a BBC series on television in the UK, and and as usual, the BBC was rubbishing Christianity. And uh, one of the things that they were using as their argument against Christianity was that they discovered a scholar somewhere who was saying that the Israelites actually were worshipping pagan gods as well as the God of Israel. So frustrating. You wanted to slap the BBC in the face, which I did regularly, but couldn't do it. Uh, I didn't want to pay the BBC for putting on the kind of rubbish that they put on. I know Americans think the BBC is wonderful. You don't live in the UK or you think differently. Let me tell you, you think differently about a lot of things if you live in the UK. Just be glad you are where you are. But, but, but anyway, that's, that's getting sidetracked. They put this thing on. Did they never read the Bible? You need the Bible and you discover that there is not a moment in the history of Israel up until the exile into Babylon where Israel was ever exclusively monotheistic worshipping the one true God. In spite of all of their language, in spite of all of the prophets, in spite of all of the men of God that God sent consistently, this is what they did. That's what uh, Stephen is saying here. He says they built their tent of Molech. God had given them a, a tent of witness, the tabernacle, which was the precursor to the temple. He'd given them that, but what did they do? They built their own tent, the tent of Molech, worshiping this false god. And the tent of Molech was a human invention designed to honor a false god. But the tent of witness, the tent where they worshiped God, had been given by the pattern that God had given to Moses. It was built according to the pattern that Moses had seen on the mountain. It was the earthly copy of a heavenly prototype. It had no image in it, no idol in it, nothing exterior or external for them to worship. They made their own shrine at the foot of the mountain as Moses receives the law from God on the mountain. And the tent of witness contained the stone tablets of testimony to the Lord's covenant with Israel. God had spoken to Abraham about possessing the land and worshiping him in Jerusalem, in that place, that land. And when Joshua led the Israelites into that land, he took the tent of witness with them. It went before them. It was of central importance. It was right in the center of the camp of Israel. Deuteronomy says that the Lord had said that he would put his name and make his habitation in that tent. The tabernacle was God's idea. Then Stephen says, King David had an idea. King David's idea was that he would build a temple for God in Jerusalem. So we read, so it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. So they built the temple. And they brought the tabernacle into the temple. 
so that all the Exodus traditions would be so focused and centered there in the tabernacle. And Solomon was the one who built the house for God. One of the themes that's been going through this chapter is, as, as Stephen speaks to these people, he says, you know, there's a great danger in trying to tie God down to any structure, whether it's a tent or a temple. He reminds them that Solomon, on his consecration day of the temple, as he, as he prays for God to come down, Solomon had prayed something like this, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open right night and day towards this house, the place of which you have said, My name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers towards this place, Listen to the plea of your servant and your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Listen in heaven your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. And when you hear, forgive. So, says Stephen, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. He is the Most High. That stresses his heavenly throne, that he is exalted above everything. How can one who fills the universe and beyond be concentrated into some earthly building? And Stephen, in telling the story, is very careful to use the language that he uses, the same language that he uses of the work of their hands in making their golden calf idol of false worship. He uses to describe the temple made with human hands. And the implication to these people is this. You are putting the temple, the building, before truth, before righteousness, before justice, before legality even. You who claim to be the people who are the protectors of the law are breaking the law of Moses. You who say that you are for pure worship that is monotheistic, that have a problem with the claims of Jesus Christ, you are making the temple into an alternative to God. Well, the Lord's hand was already building, we've been seeing in the book of Acts, a new kind of temple. In the old temple, when Solomon consecrated it, the fire fell, the great pillar of fire came and descended upon that great temple. It was a visible reminder to all of Israel that they were a supernatural people who had been called by God to himself. And there was the pillar of fire by night, the pillar of cloud by day, the great symbol of the presence of God on his temple. Now you read the book of Acts, what happened in the day of Pentecost. Here a group of 120 people praying together when the Spirit comes the same glory comes and descends and rests on each one of those people. Each believer now, you see, is a temple of God. The glory, the Shekinah glory of God descends on the day of Pentecost, just as it did on the day of the consecration of the temple in Jerusalem. The church is the new temple of God, the people of God, living stones build, being built into a spiritual house. The prophets had said that the temple in Jerusalem would be exalted 
that Mount Zion on which the temple is built would be exalted above all the mountains and that the, the mountain of God would fill the whole earth. What those people listening to Stephen didn't know was that their killing of him was going to precipitate a crisis in the church in Jerusalem. And the temple being built in Jerusalem was going to spill out from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria and out to the ends of the earth. And in Luke's record here in Acts, get to Rome the symbol of conquering the whole world. The temple is growing. It is growing today in our day. The house of God has moved out from Jerusalem and is now sucking into its vortex of grace. Continents and idols and islands and peoples and nations and language groups all around the world. The fire has fallen. The glory rests upon the church. That's the story of the book of Acts. Well, it's here that then Stephen presses home his case. Look at verse 51. Now he's speaking clearly like an Old Testament prophet. The Lord himself had, wa- had called Israel stiff-necked when they'd rejected Moses and turned to the worship of the golden calf. Jeremiah the prophet had spoken of Israel's uncircumcised ears. And here is now Stephen speaking to the nation's leaders. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. Just as Moses and Jeremiah had put Israel in the ca- category of pagan nations. So Stephen puts these religious leaders in the category of pagan leaders. He says, you are defiled and defiant. You are resistant to and rebellious against the Lord's commands. And then he makes a general statement that applies to everybody. You always resist the Holy Spirit. You always resist the Holy Spirit. He illustrates it. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. All the prophets have been persecuted to one degree or another. Second Chronicles chapter 36 says this, they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing his prophets until the wrath of God rose against this people until there was no remedy. The exile had come. Jerusalem had been destroyed. The people had been scattered. Northern Israel disappeared. Judah is taken into captivity in Babylon. Why? Because they had rejected the prophets that God had sent to them. Over and over again. And now the prosecutor presses home his most effective charge. God's promised one, the righteous one, whom the prophets predicted would come into the world, the righteous one who was the suffering servant, has come. Here's how Isaiah describes him. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. The righteous one is the servant who suffers to make it possible for unrighteous people to be accounted righteous before God and pardoned for their iniquities. What had they done? They had betrayed and murdered the righteous one. What does he mean by the righteous one? 
He means the innocent one. This is not what they wanted to hear. It was this very Sanhedrin that months before had been responsible for indicting and handing over to death an innocent man. They'd been embarrassed, possibly, by the Roman governor's insistence that Jesus of Nazareth was an innocent man, a righteous man, therefore innocent of their charges. Even his executioners had noticed this fact, and the Roman guard, responsible for his execution, looking on at the scene of Jesus on the cross, said, surely this was a righteous man. So for this group of Sanhedrin people to admit this to themselves and others would be to admit their culpability. But in rejecting Jesus, they'd been just true to form. That's Stephen's argument. The rejection of the Messiah was the obstinacy of unregenerate men and women, antagonistic to the Holy Spirit, blind and deaf to the gospel, just as their forefathers had been to the law and the prophets. Now, the impact of what Stephen is saying to this group of religious leaders then is a challenge to all of us now. It's a challenge to God's people now who possess God's Word, gather for God's worship, belong to God's people. The question for us is whether we, not, whether we have the right name or know the right stuff or worship in the right place or sing the right things, but whether our hearts have been cut by the scalpel of the Holy Spirit the uncleanness cut away, the wickedness cut away, so that we live to God. I want to pause here for a moment and say this, you know, in relation to the preaching and teaching of God's Word, there are some things that we will not let God speak to us about. And there are some people we will not let God speak to us through. You take the phrase, some things we will not let God, let God speak to us about. That was true of these people, you see. They didn't want to hear about Jesus or about the fact that God was bigger than their own backyard or about the history of God's prophets. Stephen was meddling. Like the lady in Texas who said to her pastor, at the door, I think you should stick to preaching and have less of this meddling. Sometimes you say things that go right to the heart. Well, that's what Stephen is doing in verse 51 when he says, you always, you always resist the Holy Spirit. They rejected Moses, the other prophets. They rejected Jesus. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Now, you, you know that psychologically there is some language that we're never supposed to use. The words like always and never are, you know, so... If you're a mother and you say to your child, you always get up late and you never make your bed, then you're just creating, they'll need therapy to get over that. Or, or in other contexts, you're always late home and you never phone to say. You always forget my birthday and you never give me flowers. So that kind of language. You know, I mean, that's why most men are in therapy for some reason or another. It just guarantees a fight. And here you see, Stephen is being straight up. He, this time, this, this is, this is, doesn't really matter if it's psychologically damaging because it's absolutely true. He says, you always resist the Holy Spirit. That's your history. That's your past. That's your present. That's your future. 
You resist the Holy Spirit. And what we find is this. When, whenever we say to somebody or have the opportunity to explain to someone that Jesus Christ came to die on a cross because one day everybody here has to face punishment for their rebellion against the Holy God and that God must judge. He must judge either you or he must judge Jesus in your place. And that it is only his crushing love that can take away the punishment that you deserve. People normally resist it. They reject it. Stephen's testimony about Jesus, the Son of Man, was more than these people could bear. So we read the story that to allege that a man condemned by Israel's high court now occupied the supreme place in heaven, they considered blasphemy against God. Read the story. Verse 54. Rushing him, they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. They regarded him as guilty, liable to death by stoning. But this is no orderly legal affair, no weighing of the evidence, no reaching of a verdict, no pronouncement of a sentence. In fact, the Roman occupation did not give the Sanhedrin authority to enforce capital punishment. That was their big excuse. You remember, when they were going to kill Jesus, they said to Pilate, oh, excuse me, Pilate, we can't kill him. We don't want his blood in our hands, and it's against Roman law, actually. You've got to do it. Remember, that was their excuse. You've got to do it. That was absolutely true. The Romans did not allow Jews to to execute offenders. So what's going on here? This is a lynching. This is an illegal killing. This is mob rule. This is the Jewish authorities turned into a mob with no right to kill anybody and using sheer mob tactics with Stephen. Because there are some people we will not let God speak to us through. They wouldn't listen to Jesus. They wouldn't listen to Stephen. They wouldn't listen to the apostles whom they regarded as being untrained, unconnected people. Stephen was a wild card. They wouldn't listen to him. And Jesus, they would never listen to him. Stephen teaches us in this chapter how to live for Jesus, how to speak for Jesus. But supremely, he teaches us how to die for Jesus. He'd begun this whole chapter, this whole speech, by referring to the God of glory who appeared to his father, Abraham. Later, he'd gone on to speak about Moses and the appearance of the glorious God to Moses at the burning bush. And now as he stood looking at his accusers in the face, he himself, this is crucial in the book of Acts, right in the middle of the book of Acts, he himself, this man, Stephen, who has made this glorious case against the Jewish people, this will be their final opportunity to deal with the the matter. Here, Here is the last call for the people of Jerusalem to get their act together before the Romans will come 40 years in the future to destroy Jerusalem once and for all. And Stephen, the last great Jewish witness in Jerusalem, is granted a vision of the glory of God. He sees what Abraham saw. He sees what Moses saw. Look, he says, I see heaven opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Son of Man 
language comes from, uh, from Daniel chapter 7. The Son of Man language is nothing about the, the, the humanity of Jesus, but it's everything about the divinity of Jesus and the deity of Jesus. The Son of Man in Daniel has given authority and power. He was making an astounding claim for Jesus. I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, Some people, when they read this, get all concerned about the fact that Jesus is standing in this vision. Normally, we read of Jesus seated. Hebrews in chapter 4 and 8 and 10, we see Jesus seated at the right hand of God in heaven. God makes all his enemies his footstool, and he sits with his feet on his enemies. And the sitting of Jesus is crucial. It's a sign of a finished work. It's a sign that he has accomplished all that he came into the world to do. It's a sign of his rule and his reign. He is on a throne. He has finished all that God gave him to do. But here, he's standing. He's standing as a witness. On behalf of his servant, Stephen. He'd said he'd do this. He'd said if we confess him before men, he'd confess us before God. Jesus is standing as a witness in heaven to the integrity of Stephen, but also he is standing up for Stephen. He is standing in indignation of what is going to occur to Stephen. Above all, he's standing to welcome Stephen and greet him as his Savior and as his Lord. Stephen is given to see something that Christians don't expect to see this when you die. There's many things in the book of Acts that are never repeated ever again in human history. Just as we aren't able to walk through the streets as Peter was and heal everybody we meet who is ill. And nobody's doing that. Unless there's a TV camera on them and it's nicely stage managed. It's not happening. These things are in the Bible so that you can come back to this. See, what somebody tells me about what happened to somebody's great aunt doesn't fill me with a whole lot of confidence. But when I come to the Word of God and I read the story of Stephen, that fills me with confidence. This comes from the throne. He saw the Son of Man. And you see what Stephen is saying to these people is this, whatever may be happening to me, whatever may be happening to my body, whatever ravages or consequences of the fall may be going to occur to me in this world, I see another world. That world is real, even more real than this one. I see the Son of Man. I see the Savior. I see my Lord, my Conqueror. I see my King. Professor F.F. F. Bruce puts it like this, Stephen has been confessing Christ before men. And now he sees Christ confessing his servant before God. And as the mob hisses its hatred, as the mob bays for his blood, as the mob grabs for its stones, we hear two prayers lisping from Stephen's lips. And these prayers show you what difference Christianity makes. These two prayers, quickly spoken, show you how Christianity is different it transforms people. Listen to him as he prays. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. 
King David had prayed, Into your hands I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. And David's royal successor, King Jesus, on the cross had prayed, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And here is Stephen on the verge of death, committing himself into the strong hands of his Savior. Here you've got these people shouting in enmity. Then you have Stephen raising his voice in a simple prayer, a second prayer. Lord, do not hold this sin against you. What we see is a deliberate contrast here. Here are voices raised in anger. Here is a voice raised in prayer. Here are people breathing out vengeance, bloodlust. Here is a man breathing out grace and love. Here are people full of jealousy and envy. And here is a man full of the Holy Spirit. And what we're being shown here is this is what Christianity does. This is it. This is what the gospel does. It sets you apart from the world. It makes you different from the world. Not better, but different from the world. Here is Stephen shining like a light in the darkness. While you have these other people who, like prowling animals, are out to devour him. Here is Stephen looking more like an angel than a prowling animal. Stephen's death is full of Christ. Full of Christ. And at the end, verse 60... He fell asleep. It is the most unexpectedly beautiful and sweet description of so brutal a death. And when it says he fell asleep, what's it signaling to you? Don't get involved in all kinds of questions about soul sleep and how long do you sleep and whether you wake. I mean, the Bible says you close your eyes here, you open them in heaven, and there you are, you're with the Lord Jesus. that's, That's what the Bible says. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Today you will be with me in paradise. Instantly. Like that, you're in the presence of God. But the body falls asleep when it dies. And the language of falling asleep is telling you what? You wake up again. You open your eyes again. There will be morning. Death does not have the last word, is what it's saying. Now, I said earlier that that Stephen's experience is not normal any more than it's normal for lame people to be made to walk by a single word or flames of fire to come resting on the heads of Jesus' people today or multiple thousands converted all by one sermon. Stephen's experience is in the Bible so that when it comes to death, you're ready for it. You're prepared for it. There are resources to go back to He dies for our sake, for our instruction. That's why it's in the Bible. A few years ago, I was walking our dog, Cindy. Don't laugh at the name. I had to shout it uh, in public uh, in front of other people. And uh, I was walking the dog in in Richmond Park. And uh, Richmond Park is one of the larger parks of London. There are six different species of deer protected deer. It's the king's. They're the king's deer or the queen's deer, so they're not allowed to kill them or anything or hunt them. 
And uh, sometimes walking the dog, I let her off the lead and she'd spot a young buck and she'd chase it. And that would be the end of the dog. The dog would be away. I'd see the buck bouncing into the, into the distance and know that Cindy was off in that direction somewhere. This one day I was walking her and uh, we came into a clearing and there was a whole bunch of deer at a watering hole. And Cindy did what she did best. She started back barking at them. She went up to them and she put her her legs out at the front and she looked at them and she barked her most fierce bark. She wasn't a fierce dog. You wouldn't really believe it if you saw her. But she could bark up a storm. Normally, the reaction she got was that they ran away. That was what she wanted to see. But this time, they didn't run away. They lifted up their heads from slapping up the water and they looked at her and they weren't disturbed one little bit and that got me worried because it looked to me as if they were looking not at Cindy or I they were looking at something else and uh, in a moment or two I turned around to discover there was about a nine foot stag behind me with antlers, humongous antlers, who was breathing heavily and kind of was looking, shall we say, somewhat aggressive. And uh, Cindy and I got out of there very quickly, let me tell you. The two of us, we were of one mind, and we got away as fast as possible. The deer were afraid of us, were not afraid of us, because they saw their champion behind us. And I want to say that in this chapter we discover death is like a barking dog. Death threatens to rob us of light and sound and feeling, to take from us love and joy and purpose, to blind us to the colors of fall and the freshness of spring and the warmth of the summer, the smile of a friend, the voice of a a beloved one, the laughter of children, the pleasure of family, the company of friends. But the barking dog of death is not the whole story. And the barking dog of death will not be able to harm the child of God. There is the living, vibrant, victorious, exalted champion whose head is crowned with glory now, who beyond death waits to receive his children, who stands as witness on their behalf and who waits to welcome them into his kingdom. Do you know these old words? They've been made into a modern song with a chorus, but they're great words. It is not death to die, to leave this weary road and join the saints who dwell on high who found their home with God. It is not death to close the eyes long dimmed by tears and wake in joy before your throne delivered from our fears. It is not death to fling aside this earthly dust and rise with strong and noble wing to live among the just. It is not death to hear The key unlock the door that sets us free from mortal years to praise you evermore. In the modern chorus, O Jesus, conquering the grave, your precious blood has power to save. 
those who trust in you will in your mercy find that it is not death to die. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this evening for our brother Stephen, who at the very beginning of the Christian story suffers as the first martyr and in his dying gives us hope of life and in his testimony gives us hope of justice and in his vision of the Lord Jesus gives us hope of glory. And as many in this church family have been grieving for a whole variety of reasons because of lost loved ones in these past weeks, months, years, grant that we would grasp the truth that it is not death to die. If we have Christ, to die is gain, which is by far the best. We pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen.